0: Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel, from The Globe and Mail. Before we start the show, I want to let you know that today's episode talks about the realities of war, and it might be difficult for some to hear.
1: Um, can you help describe for people in Canada what the last seven weeks were like here?
2: It was hell. It was hell here, really. And... Two times we were just laid down because it was a big explosion. So um, I have a most probably good angel if I'm still alive.
0: <laughs> That's the Globe's Nathan Vanderklip speaking to Oksana Ochnenko in Chernihiv, Ukraine. Oksana's a police officer in the city. Chernihiv is about a two and a half hour drive north of the capital, uh-huh. Kyiv. And there is, uh,
2: if you go straight, you will see on the left. Um, a building, 16, uh, oh, I don't remember, yeah, there was a big explosion, and mm-hmm. that was the day when the most, uh, biggest, let's say, number of people died.
0: We're bringing you Oksana's story today because just this week, Ukrainian troops took back the city of Chernihiv, where she lives. It's one of a number of key areas in the northern part of the country where Russian troops have retreated. Chernihiv had been under Russian control since the war started. And so it's only now that we're getting a full picture of the destruction left behind.
1: Do you know how many people died then? Uh,
0: that day, uh, that day, maybe 57.
1: Really? From that yeah. one attack? Yeah. That one bomb? Yeah. Uh-huh. OK. Tell me about some of the young people you have met and how this has affected them.
2: at uh, the beginning, all of them were very scared. Even my son when we heard this explosion of so was shaking and a lot of children they cried in the shelter because there is few moments when I hide myself even in the shelter. So when they attack. So I saw in every child's eye, like why forward? What bad we did or why we have this. So it's for me, of course, I am afraid of for the children because it's our future, and I'm so upset because I would like that they live in a good city, good country. They need to see a sun, good flowers, good things, to have good education. But what they see now, blood, only
0: blood, only dying people, what they see. Oksana sent her son to her mother's house, about 100 kilometers away, in the second week of the war. But since she has experience working in war zones, she stayed in Chernihiv to help. Before I had two
2: peacekeepers operations, so that's why I. That's didn't... why you speak such
1: good English. Yes, <laughs> I was in
2: South Sudan. Actually, there was also war in 2016, wow. and then I was in Cyprus. That's why I didn't leave the place where I live. Wow. That's why I stayed here, and I said I will not go. I will not repatriate myself anywhere, and I will help the people here, especially children, and. Uh,
0: old, old, old. Attacks in Chernihiv destroyed buildings, displaced families, and killed civilians. Every night was
2: definitely at least one other avi- attack, which was big explosion, really very big. And um, nights, uh, all the citizens, we were afraid nights, because if in daytime you make to hide yourself so at night some people they were staying not in shelter maybe at their homes so uh, we had the building where the family just died mother, father and three children so from this Ivy attack
1: how do you feel now? do you feel safe? do you feel like how do you feel?
2: I don't know even how I feel <laughs> I don't know really I, I don't feel safe even now because I don't know what they have in their minds really so but from all my heart I believe they will stop these crazy things.
1: Uh, Were there humanitarian corridors here or
2: or none? No it was but they were uh, attacked by these Russian soldiers. So was there
1: any successful ones?
2: Mm
0: -mm.
1: Not a single one? Mm
0: -mm. Until the beginning of this week it was hard to get food or humanitarian aid into the city. Yes.
1: Before yes. then, what was the food situation?
0: We didn't have
2: anything here. So we had only what before we had. So we tried to share that. And
1: what what do you miss for eating? What kind of food? Chocolate.
2: <laughs> really, chocolate. Even I asked colleague from Kiev
0: to bring chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> what
2: kind
0: of chocolate? Even though the Russian troops are gone, Oksana is left wondering why this happened. Um,
1: what do you think the Russians were trying to do here? Because they surrounded the city, right?
2: Well, I don't know what they have in their minds, but that's what they did. It's the normal people, the normal nation will never do. They just kill people. Even if you see the, I don't know in English version, how to see the book where it was written, the rules of war. Really? So they, they, they haven't, Uh, how to say it correct Uh, they should not shoot on the peaceful people they should not do it Uh, they should not destroy hospitals, schools, child gardens but if you see half of our schools in the city they just destroyed and our villages near the city it's like we never had these villages and if you see, if you will go there there's no houses at all
0: Nathan is seeing the destruction firsthand. Today, he's joining us from Kiev to tell us what it's like on the ground in places where the Russian army has attacked cities and civilians. This is The Decibel. Nathan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So we just heard your interview with Oksana in in Chernihiv. Can you tell me what it was like talking with her and and being on the ground there?
1: Well, we know that Chernihiv is is one of the uh, centers in Ukraine that was basically under siege for much of the last month and a half. And so it was interesting to hear from her as a police officer and someone who's been going around the city to get a sense of, her experience of that, both personally, um, and, uh, and as well as, you know, what she had seen. And, and she's, you know, she works with, um, with youth. And so to hear her observations on how this had uh, sort of affected young people in the city as well, I thought was quite powerful. And, and she was, you know, she didn't mince words and she said it was, it was hell. Um, and, and I think that's probably not a bad description of, of what the situation has been for a lot of people in Ukraine since the start of this invasion.
0: How would you describe Chernihiv? You yourself were there and saw things with your own eyes. How would you put it?
1: There were scenes of kind of classic scenes of liberation. There were uh, tanks and other armored vehicles that were moving through the city today. And there were onlookers on the side of the street that were raising their hands and, and kind of cheering, you know, the very classic images of liberation, the hometown troops rolling through town um, and, and being greeted sort of with happy cheers. Um, but there weren't many people on the sides of the streets. There were a couple. Um, and there were more people who were in one place where they had found uh, electricity and outdoor outlets. Um, there were people who were gathered there trying to charge up phones. There were queues of people outside of banks and supermarkets, um, and there were people who were still in underground shelters, many of them hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands, still in shelters. So I think what what I found striking was the fact that you have the immediate Kind of Russian threat now gone, that the troops have departed. They're only 60 kilometers away across the Belarusian border, but they're no longer in Ukraine in this area. Uh, and yet, in many ways, it still feels like a city under siege just because there has been so much damage that many people can't return to their homes. Uh, electricity has yet to be restored. You know, the full municipal services aren't there. Some water is running again, but not all. People don't have heat. You know, supplies are still in in short supply, and, and so I think what I found striking was just how empty it still felt, how much it still felt as if it was a city that was struggling with an immediate military threat.
0: And Chernihiv is not the only place we're, we're hearing about this week. There's been really horrific images um, and video coming out of Bucha as well, uh, which is about an hour away from Kiev. And Nathan, you were in Bucha earlier this week. What was it like to be there?
1: It's, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> there was one street that we went to where in half a kilometer, there were at least a dozen uh, burnt out carcasses of uh, tanks and armored personnel carriers and other things. Um, and, you know, numerous houses destroyed. You know, you were looking at 10, 11 story apartment Buildings in which the entire front face of the building, almost every square inch, had been hit by by munitions of some sort, bullets. Everything broken. Where um, you have uh, emergency services people who are talking about doing mine sweeping and sort of searches for other explosives, even inside of apartment buildings, and locating these kind of booby trapped devices inside of apartment buildings that belong to activists and soldiers uh, and others. Mm -hmm. And then just these, I mean, scenes that almost beggar description, you know, coming across a mangled pile of six bodies that are charred, uh, that are completely blackened because they have been set on fire. And you can still see kind of expressions on faces that are made of burnt skin, just horrific, horrific things. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I think the fact that that was still on the streets yesterday was a testament to just, you know, how difficult it has been to clear even the bodies that have been on those streets because there were um, so many of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, those those things that you're describing, they sound like they're they're really... They're hard to talk about. They must be really hard to see. Um, this, the war has been going on since the end of February. And I just wonder, why are we only hearing about this, this kind of atrocity now?
1: I think the point of distinction here is that we're no longer hearing about it. We're now seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what has made Bucha so important. We have heard about a lot of these things and and seen some of them, although often kind of in more distant formats from drone images and others. But what we have seen and, you know, my own reporting, early on in the war, I remember interviewing a woman who described having to reassemble the pieces of her son who was struck by a mortar and then cover them up with a tarp and run away because the shelling was still happening and she didn't want the dogs to take apart the pieces of her son and then returning the next day to collect them. But that is something that I wrote about. That's not something I had images of. And I think what we've had in Bucha is we have had images of these things. What we've also had in Bucha um, that I don't know that we have heard as much about before is we've had um, very, very clear images of uh, people killed in what looks to be execution fashion. These images of people who are hooded, uh, who have their hands tied behind their back, who have been shot in the back of their heads. And coming upon bodies in that state, I think, is a, you know, a very extraordinarily vivid image of the circumstances of some of these deaths. And I think that has that has really struck the conscience of, you know, much of the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are allegations that, of course, Russian soldiers have have been doing this. What is Russia saying about those allegations, though?
1: Russia has completely denied any responsibility. Russia has suggested that these images that have come out of Bucha and other places uh, were staged. I should hasten to add that there is no evidence for that whatsoever. And there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary. I mean, there are situations in which there are aerial videos of uh, civilians being shot at and then those bodies now being um, seen and documented Um, shot at while the Russians were there and shot at from Russian um, positions. And there are other incidences where, you know, there are bodies that have been found on streets and those have been linked up to bodies seen on satellite images um, from long before the Russian retreat.
0: So now Russian troops have left these areas. Why have they pulled out of these parts of the country?
1: Well, there's an expectation in Ukraine that there's a regrouping that is taking place. There is a fear that there will be a new, more coordinated offensive on parts of eastern Ukraine. And, uh, you know, in Chernihiv, there are fears as well that perhaps there will be a renewed assault at some point in time uh, from Belarus back into those areas. Another, I think, I suppose a, a simple answer is. You know, after weeks and weeks of effort and considerable losses on the Russian side, Russian troops were not able to take over Kiev as they sought to. They were not able to take over Chernihiv. They were not able to take over Sumy. And so they've withdrawn.
0: And if they've moved out of that region, where might we see them actually uh, focus their attention on instead?
1: One of the fears is uh, Kharkiv, which is um, the second largest city in Ukraine, It's a place that's already seen a great deal of destruction, um, but has also managed to keep itself out of Russian hands. It is nonetheless very close to the Russian border and had been considered quite a Russian city. And then other parts of Eastern Ukraine, Mariupol, uh, which is a place that has seen uh, the most severe siege and the most severe conditions, I think, probably of any place in Ukraine, in the, in the course of this war, has still managed to uh, resist the takeover by Russian forces, um, but is strategically critical for Russia, both because it's an important port, uh, as well as because it occupies land that, that Russia wants to occupy. And then perhaps other places in sort of eastern and, and southeastern Ukraine that are linked to uh, territories that Russia has quasi seized uh, already since 2014.
0: When you talk to people and they hear that you're a Canadian, Nathan, do they ever tell you what they think of the West's response to all of this?
1: You know, I don't know that that's come up in any of the conversations that I have had. But of course, we've heard that quite clearly from the leadership of Ukraine and in sort of very consistently calling for more help. And and this week, um, the, the Ukrainian president going to the United Nations Security Council.
0: Gentlemen, Are you ready
2: to close the UN? Do you think that the time of international law is gone? If your answer is no, then you need to act immediately.
1: Suggesting that, you know, if international rules mean anything, then they have to mean something and then they have to mean some sort of consequences and some sort of effort to enforce what is actually written in the various conventions and statutes and otherwise uh, that are meant to uh, govern conduct in in wars and otherwise. And I think that has been a a very direct challenge to the function of those international institutions and, and perhaps even to their legitimacy in terms of the role they play in the coming weeks and months.
0: And you mentioned that um, you've been talking to people who are in Chernihiv and, and in Bucha as well. Is there a sense of relief in a way, maybe, that the city isn't occupied anymore? Or how are how are people thinking about that?
1: There's some relief. And uh, one of the things that I found really striking in Chernihiv today was the gardening. Really? <laughs> there were municipal workers that were out huh. working on the planters in the central square. And it just struck me that gardening is in some ways one of the most optimistic human activities. You know, it is work that is done now in the expectation that you will be around uh, to enjoy the fruits of your labor many months down the road. And, uh, you know, one of the people I spoke with today was showing me his house, which had been damaged by a rocket and a bomb strike. Um, and uh, his wife was in the back. I mean, there was debris all around, you know, parts of his house um, inside. The, the percussive force of a bomb was so strong that it had blown apart doors inside of the house. And his wife was working in the backyard, uh, clearing sticks and other kind of woody debris from the garden, preparing to plant potatoes and cucumbers. That was a big priority in terms of, you know, life will go on. While that was happening, there are still many, many people who didn't really express much in the way of joy. I think there is still a dread, quite a pervasive sense of dread that, you know, maybe this isn't over. Maybe Russia will come back again. We've, you know, we've seen this in other places. And not only that, but one of the people I spoke with today said something interesting. He said, We've come to fear silence. It's silent now, but we've come to fear silence because over the last number of weeks, you know, there would be fighting, there would be arms fire and perhaps some artillery. And when that went silent, it was often followed by the bigger strikes, the airstrikes and other things that were truly destructive.
0: Nathan, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and, and for speaking with us today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Ali Graham helped edit this episode. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.